Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Uh, we're going to be basing a series of Bible studies on what the early Christians believed were the most important aspects of doctrine. Now, this should be several episodes long. We're going to be talking about several points and everything like this. We're not doing deep doctrinal critical studies, not doing systematic theology type stuff, but just doing a a basic look at some things, and we'll be dropping in some things here and there, um, maybe a little bit deeper at times throughout this series. But I wanted to do just a sort of basic doctrinal series that if somebody's just now starting to look at doctrines, so just now starting to try to get a grasp of things, then this would probably be a good place to begin. So let's begin by reading uh, something from, this is from the Nicene Creed of 325. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, and from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. And then this part is in brackets. But those who say, there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence. The Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. That's the end. Now, it's important to note that the word Catholic did not always refer to Roman Catholicism. Um, the word Catholic simply means universal or common. And so it's used before the formation and rise of Roman Catholicism was just referring to the common faith of Christianity, where it was, the, it was Christianity, and so they called it Catholic. You know, and so that's the that's the way in which it was used, kind of in antiquity, um, just according to the sense of the word. Nowadays, we just attach it to Romanism, you know, Roman Catholicism. Um, but the Nicene Creed was something that came about whenever Christians were arguing about certain things. There were certain cultish ideas that were coming to the forefront, which we'll talk about in another episode, specifically around the person of Jesus Christ, and later of the Holy Spirit. Um, and they, a lot of the bishops and stuff throughout the throughout Europe and the Middle East and places, they came together to lay out what they agreed was biblical doctrine. They weren't deciding it, as we'll talk about in a minute. They were simply writing it down in response to people who were arguing against it, people like Arius and things like that. Um, so these points were emphasized by early Christians in creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed and a revised form of the Nicene Creed, um, like the one in Constantinople in 381. But we'll use the Nicene Creed of 325 AD as a basic outline. And so the points that are emphasized can be laid out very, very basically as a biblical view of God the Father as Creator, a biblical view of God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of God, or the Anointed One of God, the Messiah, Jesus as creator also, and that will include when we talk about the deity of Christ, an understanding of the reason for the incarnation, that God became a man, an understanding of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the biblical view of the second coming of Christ, 
the biblical view of the Holy Spirit and an understanding of how changes in certain of these points makes one an apostate. That is somebody who has left Christianity. They've accepted something contrary to Christian doctrine, and therefore they've left the faith. Now, scholars have noted that Christians very early on were organizing basic doctrinal statements of faith that we call creeds. Scholars are growing in their conviction that one of the earliest ones is actually referred to by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul wrote, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. That's First Corinthians 15, verse, uh, verses 1 through 8. Now again, we see the basic points that, that were being preached by the early Christians, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen by Cephas, that's Simon Peter, that's his Aramaic name, uh, Cephas, um, the Twelve, which is a reference to the general group of the apostles, over 500 believers at once, um, James, the brother of Jesus, all the apostles again, and Saul, who would later be called Paul. And there's also an emphasis by Paul that if someone doesn't continue to believe this, then they have believed in vain. That is, it will not profit them at all because they did not continue to believe. Another stab at eternal security being not biblical. Um, and now I discussed the importance of this early creed in our episode on defending the resurrection of Christ, which I'll tell you when to put that one into this series, because I'm not going to re-record it. For the moment, I'll mention that it's important because it predates any New Testament scripture. And this proves that the early Christians were preaching the same gospel that we have today right out of the gate. Um, this refutes the notion that people began to add to the legend of Jesus over time, or think about this Dan Brown stuff, uh, the Da Vinci Code, people say, oh, at the, at the Council of Nicaea, they agreed that Jesus would now be called the Son of God. Well, that's completely false, and historians know that's false. No, the early Christians preached the gospel and the deity of Christ right from the very beginning. And so let's begin by talking about God. Specifically, we're focusing on God the Father right now, although it's obvious that the attributes and character of God the Father are going to be consistent throughout the Trinity. And we'll focus on Jesus as the Son of God and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity in separate episodes. So we're not going to be dealing with the intricacies of the Trinity, and how is Jesus the Son of God, and what is the Holy Spirit, and things like that right now. We're just talking about um, God the Father, and just basic looking at things right now. We're not doing in-depth critical or doctrinal studies here. We're just going to be looking at scriptures and at times discussing some things. Um, there are many good resources for this sort of thing, and at times I'll mention some of them throughout the series. So let's begin by thinking of God the Father um, as the Creator. So let's first begin by talking about the fact that God is spirit. Um, John chapter 4, verse 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit 
and in truth. Now, there's a sometimes some arguments are made against how newer versions translate John 4.24 when they say that God is spirit as opposed to God is a spirit. And they say, oh, look, they're slipping in pantheism, um, that, you know, God's a tree, he's this and that. And they'll say, oh, he's all spirit. Well, that's not what it's saying at all. This is a translation issue, a language issue. Um, the underlying language of the New Testament is Koine Greek, and there's there's no article in this place. And Greek does not have an indefinite article. It does not have a blanket. It's either the blanket or blanket, you know. Um, and so translators sometimes have to insert the, the indefinite article in English. And it comes down to choice. It's nothing nefarious about it. Either you say God is spirit, and you're talking about exactly what does he consist of, what is his nature in that sense, or you're saying God is a spirit, um, and you're just referring to him, him as, you know, he is a spirit. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're saying anything. It's just if you say God is spirit, you're referring to what is he naturally? Is he um, is he material or immaterial in that sort of sense? And it just depends on which the translators believe that Christ is emphasizing. And now here in the King James, it says God is a spirit. And the emphasis is that God is not this material being necessarily who relies on material. And so this is why Christ goes on to say that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25, Paul speaking says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. That's what Paul is trying to explain to, I believe it's in the context of the philosophers. Um, he specifically is talking about the fact that since God made all things, it's manifest that he is not dependent on anything. If he pre-exists all material things in the universe, um, then it's manifest that he doesn't need them since he's the originator of them. He doesn't need temples. He doesn't need food like the Hindu gods where they'll go and bring food and set it at the foot of this altar or at the, at the foot of this statue. He doesn't need anything from us, you know, because he pre-exists all these things. He does not rely on the material universe. The material universe relies upon him. First um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 um, Paul writing says, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And you can cross-reference that with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, where Paul here is referring in First Timothy to the fact that God is eternal. He's immortal, and he's invisible. He's the only wise God. Um, he's spirit. He's not reliant on anything. He's not like you, and he's not like me. Um, here's passage Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, and verses 15 and 16. And G came near and stood under the mountain, referring to Sinai. And the mountain burned with fire under the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of, his, of the words, but saw no similitude. They didn't see his being whenever God descended on Mount Sinai. Only he heard a voice. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in horror out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So this is pretty much talking about where the Lord is outlawing idolatry, because no man has seen God at any time, as we read in other places. Any time that somebody saw a manifestation of God in the Old Testament, it was the angel of the Lord. It was the person 
of Christ, really, before he became a man. Um, he is the visible image of the invisible God we read about in the book of Colossians, I believe is where that verse specifically is. And so, but no man has seen God the Father at any time. And so, by you thinking about that, God has outlawed anybody from trying to depict him. You're just going to corrupt the image. You're going to bring him down to be something that you can grasp in your mind, idolatry. You know, this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, where they started to worship the creature or the creation more than the creator. You know, you think about whenever Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, at first kings, um, started, he built the two golden calves, set one in Bethel and one in Dan, and he said, no, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Um, kind of like how Aaron and them did um, at the base of Sinai. They said they made a golden calf. I said, no, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. There's a reason God hates it, because you are bringing God down. Now, next, God is eternal. That means he's without beginning and without ending. Um, Exodus 3.14, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now that's the passage whenever Moses asks the Lord, saying, Well, who do I say sent me, Lord? And he says, and this is where the Lord reveals his name, I am that I am, which is in Hebrew, they abbreviated with yod Hey, vav Hey. you know, the in English, we render it Y-H-W-H. You know, when we say it's Yehovah, um, Yahweh, or Jehovah when it's anglicized. Um, and so whenever he says that, I am that I am, he's pretty much saying, I am the self-existent one. He's not dependent upon anything else without beginning or without ending, without any dependency on anything else. Truly the only independent being in the universe, in all existence. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. And so this is referring to the fact that God is the everlasting God. Um, again, eternal, no beginning, no ending. People sometimes have a problem with that and thinking about the idea of eternity. Um, I like Ray Comfort's illustration that he uses where he says, well, you have no problem thinking about eternity. It's actually hard for you to not comprehend that in certain aspects and certain things. Think about space. We always hear about space has no end, right? Oh, what's at the end of it if if, you, if that means it's eternal? If it wasn't eternal, if it didn't keep going on and on and on, then what's at the end of it? A brick wall that says the end? Well, if that's the case, then what's on the other side of the brick wall? And you kind of have to think about that regarding time or existence regarding God's existence. Um, if you remember basic algebra or geometry, a number line, you know, you got the two arrows on the end of the line, and you got the little tick marks saying where you are in relation to zero, negatives or positive relation to zero in the middle, right? If you didn't have those tick marks, you would have no idea where you were. And so it's like that. God had no beginning and no end. Time didn't have any sort of concept with God until he said, in the beginning, and until he created something. And so then you put that first little tick mark on the number line, and you have some sort of reference point of where you are. There was something other than God that he did, he created, and therefore there was this other thing. There was ex something was existing other than himself, and now there's a reference point. And so this is why we say, in the beginning. We're pointing back to the beginning of when God did. God began to create something. And so just kind of trying to talk about the concept of eternity with God in his own existence. Um, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. 
Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Now, this is where the Lord, again, he states, he's the only one. He's the first and the last. There's nothing, no other God besides him. He is the only God, the only wise God. Um, Christ himself kind of takes this title to himself in the book of Revelation, um, identifying his own deity. And I am the first and I am the last. Another reference uh, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, a reference to the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Um, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever there ha thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So from everlasting past to everlasting future, he is God, present tense. He is God throughout all eternity. Um, some other verses to look at would be Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, Psalm 45, verse 6, Psalm 145, verse 13, and Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. Now let's talk about that one again, um, how God is self-existent and self-sufficient. Uh, again, Exodus three fourteen, where he says, um, I am that I am. Um, he is That, in essence, is translatable as he is the self-existent one. I don't like how some of the newer versions render it. They say, well, I am who I am. Well, that's nice. Every single one of us can say, I am who I am. Um, but only God can say, I am that I am. Um, a lot of things that bother me about some of these modern ad campaigns or stuff where they say, oh, I am this. You know, with the, I think it began with the whole Malala thing. Um, the one Muslim girl was, you know, terrible what happened to her being shot at, shot in the head by um, the Taliban, I think it was. She survived and became an activist for women's education and stuff. But it really bothers me when I hear all these I am statements, you know, people all gathering together having their fist in the air. I am this or I am the I am union or I am safety or I am justice and all these things. It's really blasphemous in what it's actually saying because only God is the I am. I uh, think about Kenneth Copeland and the word faith heresies, where he says, you know, whenever he reads where God says, I am, and he looks in, he says, I am too. Well, no, that's blasphemy. Only God is the self-existent and self-sufficient one. Even atheists depend upon God because he has their very breath in his hand. Um, Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. And one of the reasons I love reading the Old Testament prophets is you see how God thinks, you see how God reasons with people, um, and his wisdom, and you get to know the character of God. And the Lord reasons here, and I think it's repeat, some of these things were repeated by the Jews at certain times. I think Solomon, whenever he was dedicating the temple, um, kind of repeats some of these things. And I think even the apostles repeated them in the book of Acts. But he says, hey, I'm the one who made all these things, so I don't need these things for me to rest or anything like that. He's not dependent upon anything is what he's saying. Um, again, we'll read Acts seventeen twenty four through 25 again, where, where Paul says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. You know, think about the Greeks. They build temples unto Artemis and Diana, and unto Zeus, you know, Jupiter, and Saturn, and all these gods, 
as though they needed something. Or the Hindus, they constantly bring food to these idols while their own people are starving. Um, it's a contradiction. If you're, if you're reliant upon your God, why does he rely upon you? Well, no, that's not how it works. And so that's what Paul is saying to these idolaters, uh, these philosophers and stuff. He says, no, God is not worshipped with men's hands in that way. He does not need anything from you. He does not need you to feed him. So next we'll talk about God is immutable. Now, immutable, I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E, is a word we talk about and we use it a lot when we're discussing the attributes of God. If something is immutable, uh, it means it's unchanging. And so God himself is unchanging. He himself says so. His character and his person does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he says. Um, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, we read, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. So that may be more a reference to his eternality, but the fact that the universe is like an, a garment that's growing old with time, and it's going to have to be changed because it wears down. Kind of a nod to the um, first and second laws of thermodynamics and physics. It's, everything's breaking down over time. It's not getting better and better, contrary to evolution. But unlike the fact that the universe is breaking down, complex systems are breaking down, energy is wearing out, and those sorts of things, God is the same, and he doesn't need to change. He's not changing. He's the same, and just as he was in the beginning when he began to create things. Um, Malachi 3.6, one of the most common verses to talk about the immu immutability of God, the fact that he does not change. He literally says, For I am the Lord, I change not. And therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi 3.6, the Lord, is he doesn't change. You know, what he thought was wicked a thousand years ago, it's still wicked today because God doesn't change. His standards don't change. His morality doesn't change. Um, Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And these are things to, this is a good verse to remember when you're praying about something. You're, you got a promise from the scriptures that you're interpreting correctly and you're keeping it in its right context. You know, like, okay, this is a promise. It is applicable to me as a Christian today. Um, God is not a liar. He doesn't change his mind. You know, he doesn't go back on his word because he doesn't change. You know, what, what exactly could happen to a God who knows the, the very end from the beginning? If he promises something, there's nothing that's going to change it. There is no situation that can come about. There's nothing he's unaware of. Nothing has ever occurred to God in the, you know, in the sense of what we talk about. You know, if he says it, he'll do it. And this is one of the reasons we can have confidence in his promises, because he does not change. If he changes, one, then he's not God, because God, the, whatever created all things, has to be sustained. It has to be an absolute, otherwise no system works. No philosophical system, no morality, nothing works. Um, physics doesn't work unless there is an absolute undergirding everything, which talked about that in the one episode, One Good Reason to Believe. But here, God doesn't change, which is why we can have confidence in every single one of his promises. Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart 
to all generations. So God's word doesn't change because he doesn't change. If he said it, he's going to uphold it. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. A variableness there is meaning there's no change in God's understanding. You ever think of the fact that God is not learning? God knows everything. He doesn't learn. He already knows everything. There is never a time ever that he did not already know everything. So there's, he's not constantly learning to be better, to have a better way of doing things. That is not God. Um, there is no shadow of turning in him. That is, there's no fickleness in him. He's not a fickle God. He does not just, you know, willy-nilly do things quickly and then, and then without thinking. No, we have a consistent God, the absolute. He does not change. Next, God is omnipotent. Now, omnipotent is a compound word. It just means all-powerful. There's nothing too hard for God. Uh, we think about Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The obvious answer being no. Matthew nineteen twenty six. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Job 42, verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Psalm 135, verses 5 through 6. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whosoever the Lord, whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all deep places. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Now, I will say just in passing, I'm not trying to get into a Calvinism, predestination, predeterminism sort of debate, but some people, because they see that God's will will be done, they believe that evil is a result of what God has said also. Well, no, that would be contrary to his very nature. Now, God has to allow certain things because he allows man to have free will. If man didn't have free will, then he couldn't be held accountable for his own actions. Um, and this is where you're getting into a Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, neither of which camp I stand with because it's bifurcation is all that it is. It's a false either-or. Um, it basically comes down to, they say, one side says, because God's will is always done, then everything that happens is God's will. Now, it's not all Calvinists. There's a spectrum in Calvinism. But pretty much, it's this determinism, right? You know, if a leaf falls in Japan, it's therefore God's fault. You know, everything like that. And this doesn't allow for what the Bible describes in the sense of God does tell men to do things and then asks them and pleads with them to do it. Why? Because he's not forcing them to do it. He wants them to choose to do it. There is no virtue in forced obedience. That's called slavery. And while servants of God do refer to themselves as slaves at a certain time, 
God still punishes them and acts consistently throughout the scriptures and all eternity and all you know past this described as though they had a choice. And so if you want to know where I stand on the matter, I think Calvinism is a ridiculous system that's completely unbiblical, and even the early Christians said that those ideas were heretical. Now, am I saying that Calvinists are necessarily not saved by that? No. But it is a philosophical problem in their understanding. Now, let's talk God is omnipresent. So we talked about omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. This is omnipresent. What do you think that means? Well, it means all-present. There is no place that God is not there in the sense of watching, in the sense of controlling. You know, the Lord sustains every atom in this universe within their finely tuned, you know, where they need to be so that the universe can operate. He is the absolute undergirding all the universe. First Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Um, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven of heaven and heavens, behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. That was Solomon when he was dedicating the temple, saying, kind of talking again about God doesn't need anything from us. You know, he's not going to just walk into the temple and live there in the sense of, you know, all of his person because it couldn't contain him. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. This is David. He says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Now, several things to take away from that passage. He says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? You know, where God is spirit. You know, God is not material. He says, Whither shall I flee from thy presence? And the implication being that he can't. Um, he says, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. Nobody really has a problem with it. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. So people sometimes have a problem with that. And I don't have it right before me. It's either the word Sheol or Gehenna. Te technically, one of those words are Tartarus. There's different Greek words in the New Testament. I don't know which Hebrew word is underlying that at the, off the top of my head. Um, but pretty much... You can see from the rest of Scripture, um, people going to hell is not being separated from God from all eternity because the only reason that hell is eternal in that sense, you know, until hell itself is cast into the lake of fire, is because God is the one keeping it going. And people will say, oh, that's horrible. Well, no, what's horrible is rejecting a, an all-loving and all-wonderful God so that you can cling to sin. That's what's horrible. Um, every single person who goes to hell goes there because of their own decisions. Um, it's not because God did not want them to be saved. Quite the contrary. The Lord says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God, God is not somebody casting people into a pit of hell or into the lake of fire and just gleefully smiling like he's a kid with a magnifying glass on an anthill just smiting people. No, the Lord is constantly begging people to turn. He says, turn ye, turn ye, for why will ye die? And so if you want to call somebody wicked, call the ones who reject such a loving God wicked because they're the ones who are actually doing that which is wicked. And what's funny is if God didn't punish, at the same time you have people saying, well, how can God send anybody to hell? That's wicked. At the same time, though, they say, well, how can there be such a loving and wonderful God if there's so much evil in the world? So at the one hand, they say God is wicked because he, he punishes evil. And on the other hand, they say God is wicked because there is evil. Well, you can't have it both ways. If you want him to not cast people into hell, then he can't punish 
wickedness. If you want him to punish wickedness, then he has to, you know, endure it for a time so that people can be held accountable for their actions and give people a chance to repent. Otherwise, we would all be going to hell, which is why God doesn't just immediately cast people into hell. Because then no one would ever be saved. But, sorry, I just have to go off on that sometimes. It's so irrational. Um, but David goes on to say, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. And so, just like Ravi Zacharias talked about, he thought it was funny. Where I think it was Frederick Nietzsche who had the one... Um, um, I don't know what you call it, poem. I don't remember off the top of my head. His one writing where he talks about the man searching for God with a lantern and couldn't find him. And here's David saying, I can't get away from you. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is what is fat, what you're determining. There are some people who do not find God because they determine that they don't want to. And they say, oh, there is no God. At the same time, they're holding their hands over their ears. They're shutting their eyes and acting like a four-year-old trying to block out everything that could ever convince them that God exists because they don't want him to exist. But his existence isn't dependent upon their belief, and they're going to find that out eventually. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 through 24. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in, a, in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? So the God here specifically saying, you can't escape me. I, my eyes are in every place. You know, even the dark places are light to me. You know, there's no place that you can hide yourself from God. Again, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28, where Paul is reasoning there. Uh, we'll read a little bit more of the passage this time. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations for of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul's here not talking about panentheism or anything like that, or pantheism. But He's talking about the fact that, no, God is in every place, beholding both the good and the evil. You can't escape God. He's not far from every one of us. Next, we read passage Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy, and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's where the Lord said, Christ himself says, I am with you even unto the end of the world. Next, God is omniscient. This is the word meaning all-knowing. First uh, Samuel 2, 3. Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. Uh, Job 37.16 
Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge? Or Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord, and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Uh, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. So here, even adding to the fact that God knows our very thoughts, and He knows the things that are in the deepest recesses of our minds and in our desires. So I read verses like these, and I you see these Hollywood caricatures of God. Think of it, the Bruce Almighty movie years ago with uh, Morgan Freeman and Jim Carrey, where they have this comical view of God as though he's like us. And they have no understanding of, of how much they are bringing God down. Next, we're talking about God is holy. Now, the word holy is different than the concept of righteousness. Um, now, the two are kind of connected in one sense, that those who are holy are righteous, but they're not synonymous. Holiness speaks of something being other than. It is different. It is set apart. It is not like the other things, whereas righteousness spe speaks of moral uprightness, of doing that which is right. And so holiness, where God is holy, he is unlike anyone else. He is unlike anything else. Psalm 111, verse 9. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. So even the very name of God is holy. Um, Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a con contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Contrite being the sense of you are you're in contrition for your sins. You realize your place before God as being very low compared to him. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, cross reference that with Revelation 4, verse 8, where even the angels in the very presence of God cover their face, and they cry holy in the presence of God. They're not less reverent because they're close to him. They are more reverent because they see him as he is in his very presence. Exodus chapter 15, verses 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? You see, we can't make idols of God. We can't make images of God because there's nothing equal to a representation of him, nothing except for the person of Jesus Christ himself. He alone is the visible image of the invisible God. 
And so this is one of the reasons why God hates idolatry. Um, next, God is righteous in the sense that God always does that which is right. Psalm 7, verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. You know what's so funny, funny to me about unbelievers or people who are not Christians calling God wicked? It means that they have a sense of right, of moral right and wrong that they believe is superior to God. You know, as though they themselves are higher than God, are in a place to judge him. Um, that's just ridiculous. It's, you know, like an ant on an anthill waving his fist at the air, you know, as a lawnmower is about to hit him. Um, Psalm 97 verse 2. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. Psalm 119, 142. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So the Lord delights in loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. He delights in those things, he says. Isaiah 5.16 But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Sanctified means to set apart. It comes in the very same sense of holy. Next, God is true. Jeremiah 10.10 But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. You know, the reference point for truth is God himself. Uh, John 17, 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Um, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. If God says something, it is concrete. It's not going to change. God is not going to change. His word is true. Titus 1-2 In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. So God, it's impossible for God to even conceive of a lie. God is just, as in the sense of justice. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.4, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Isaiah 45.21, Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Revelation 15.3 And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Romans chapter 3, verses 23-26 through 26, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, 
to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Next, God is love. There's no tension between God being a God of wrath and a God of love. There's no tension between them. They are both mutually together in this. In fact, you can't hate something unless you love the opposite of that. You know, I love my children, therefore I hate pedophiles, is the common expression used by a lot of evangelists. Second uh, Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. First John 4.8 He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-7 through 7, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come you might show the exceeding riches of his grace in, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Exodus 34, 6-7 And the Lord passed by before him, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, under the third and to the fourth generation. And that'll segue right into the next part. God is merciful. Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Second Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. James 5.11 Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Luke 6.35-36 But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, and remembereth that we are dust. No, God is patient. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. That's 140, Psalm 145, verse 8. Um, 1 Peter 3.20 Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Second Peter 3, 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Romans 2.4 Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Um, next, God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1.1, um, Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Hebrews 3.4. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Isaiah 45.12. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. Isaiah 45:18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Jeremiah 10:12. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. So next we'll switch over real quick, talking about some more doctrinal stuff. There is one God. The Bible teaches what's called monotheism. It comes from the Greek words monos, meaning alone or only, and theos, meaning God, you know, there's only one God. The emphasis is that there is only one entity in this class that can be called God. There is only one entity that can refer to itself as God. This is different than the idea of Unitarianism, which denies the idea of the Trinity, that, that God is three in one, and necessarily denies the deity of Christ. Um, for example, if you think about it, if there is only one God and then he's not three in one, then Jesus cannot be called God or the Son of God. You would have multiple gods then. See, monotheism is a necessary biblical doctrine. If someone does not affirm monotheism, then they cannot be a Christian. They would be teaching polytheism, many gods. And we'll talk about this when we talk about the Trinity. Um, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Lord says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Uh, it's actually repeated in the New Testament, Mark 12, 29. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's, um, the Jews refer to it as the Shema. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. First Kings 8, 60, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Next, God has revealed himself. So God has revealed himself. The God who created all things has revealed himself, or he has given us a revelation of himself. The Bible lists several ways that God has given to men a knowledge of himself, and these can be considered under two categories, special revelation and general revelation. Now, in general revelation, we have two parts. You have creation 
and conscience. Now, regarding creation, uh, how creation it reveals a general knowledge of God. You can know that God exists, not necessarily all the ins and outs of who he is and what he does and things like that. Um, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day into day uttereth speech, and night into night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Um, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Talks about those who did not like to retain the knowledge of God in their understanding. And when you look at the universe, you see order in every single way. And it is foolishness to deny that order has to come from an intelligent mind. It is foolishness. You will never convince me of anything else. And so it's talking about they, these kind of people who deny it, these kind of people who want to believe in evolution. They want to believe that order can arrive out of chaos by random chance, which is a completely illogical statement to make. It says that these people, their foolish hearts have become darkened. They've denied the truth so long and they're very conscious that they don't want to believe the truth. And they, so they suppress it in their minds lest they should be converted. And next, our conscience bears witness. Um, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. So what he's talking about here is how our conscience bears witness to the moral law of God. We all know that stealing's wrong because when people steal from us, we whine about it. And we say, hey, that's wrong. Don't steal from me. But whenever we steal, we try to justify it. Our conscience bears witness to the fact that, you know, if we were to judge ourselves by our own conscience, we would still not be righteous. Things like stealing, adultery, um, lying, um, murder. Everybody does not want these things to be done to them, but they want to be free to do them to others. Sometimes. This inconsistency shows our justifying of sin in ourselves while trying to force others to abide by a moral law that we don't want to be judged by ourselves. That's our conscience accusing us and showing us our own wickedness and bearing witness to the moral law of God. We've been made by God, and that's God's stamp upon us. And then the second category, special revelation. This is how God reveals more has revealed detail about himself. People can look at creation and our conscience and see, no, we were made for a purpose. There is order and things like that. But when you special revelation is what causes us to understand the specifics about God. Special revelation would include like God speaking to men, visions, you know, scripture, things like that. So in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, we read, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. 
And so in this statement, you have two aspects. You have the prophets, which kind of would include the law of Moses in the Old Testament. Um, Moses was a prophet himself, and the son of, and you have the Son of God, where God has spoken to us in time past by the prophets, which would include the Old Testament canon, and then in the, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, by his Son. And so regarding the Old Testament, we read that the entire Old Testament bears witness to Christ himself. Christ himself said that the entire Old Testament canon spoke of him when he said in Luke 24, 44, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. They all pointed to him. And also Christ is the fulfillment of what God intended for the law of Moses. He's the end of it. You want to follow the point of the law of Moses, you're going to end up at Jesus Christ and humble yourself and follow him. Uh, Matthew five seventeen through 18, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, to, to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. You know, the law wasn't done away with. It was fulfilled. The purpose for which it was given was done. And now, Galatians 3.24, the purpose is Jesus Christ. The law was given to point us to Christ. Show us our own sinfulness, our need of a Savior. Jesus Christ came, the ultimate revelation of God, and now we follow him. And now the second aspect is the Son of God. So all that the apostles taught came ultimately from Jesus himself. They were expounding and explaining the teachings of Jesus Christ. It was his doctrine that they taught, not their own. There is not this division between the Gospels and the epistles that were written by the apostles. There, no. While the apostles in Christ lived during the Gospels under the law because the eternal covenant, the new covenant, had not been put in place yet because Jesus hadn't died yet, all that he taught in the Gospels was applicable to Christians. And this is clearly seen in the Gospels when Christ himself says in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The apostles were to go forth and teach the words of Jesus Christ. It's not different doctrine. The, the law is, you know, the, the gospels are not the law. They are to Christians, and that's what the apostles taught. The epistles and the rest of the books in the New Testament are just the explanation and further laying out of what Christ taught for us. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14 I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, that's talking about the Spirit of God, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. So, even the Spirit of God, who teaches and opens up our understanding, who gifts the body of Christ with teachers, pastors, and manifestations and these things. He only reveals that which comes from Jesus Christ. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And so even the apostles and disciples are sent by Jesus Christ. First Timothy 6, 3-5. 
If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. And so, this, one of the things that troubles me about people saying that the Gospels are not for Christians today, which is kind of a hyper-dispensationalist view, more prevalent in the fundamentalist Baptist circles, um, and some other people who have been influenced by the fundamentalists, is they try to say that, that the commandments of Christ, specifically in things like the Sermon on the Mount, they want to say, oh, that's to the Jews, it's under the law. Or they relegate the Sermon on the Mount to it's the constitution of the kingdom. You know, under the, you know, Revelation chapter 20, that's what it's talking about, which completely removing it from its context and making it into some abstract thing. Well, no, that's not what the apostles said. That's not what Christ said. It says the words of our Lord Jesus Christ are binding for us today. And if you don't adhere to that, it says that you're destitute of the truth. So you need to be careful about that. And so God has revealed himself to us through general revelation, creation, and conscience, and then also through special revelation, through the Old Testament canon and, in a sense, the New Testament canon, where you have the words of Christ himself and the apostles who were elaborating and explaining Christ's doctrine. Now, lastly, talking about the fact that God is the Father. Now, the Bible makes clear that God is the Father of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is not meaning that God the Father came down and had sexual intercourse with Mary. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's never been what Christianity has taught. That idea is falsely promoted by some cults that try to slander Christianity. It simply means that Jesus of Nazareth's birth was the direct result of a procreative act where the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. It says that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, and Luke chapter 1, verse 35, which we'll read in a minute. He is begotten, in that sense, by God the Father through the Spirit from Mary. It was a spiritual act that resulted in Jesus' birth and not a physical one. Now, Jesus and the apostles regularly referred to God as his Father, as Jesus' Father. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, as when Gabriel speaking with Mary, and the angels said unto her, answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, a direct, a direct act of the Holy Spirit upon Mary. Uh, John 20, verse 21, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, for as my Father hath sent me, that is, into the world, even so send I you. Uh, John eight eighteen. I am, the, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Christ talking. Uh, Galatians 4, 4, Paul. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And as in Christ's earthly ministry, he lived according to the law of Moses. And so there it refers to God's Son. Uh, John, 1 John 4, verse 14, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so that's where we'll end this time. Next time we will talk about Jesus as the Son of God and the deity. And deity. Um, again, we're going to be separating the issue of the Trinity 
from these specific ones talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, because it's more of a doctrinal issue, and so we'll focus on that in a different episode. But I uh, look forward to hearing from anybody. Remember, that email my email is at the end of every single episode. Uh, if you have questions, comments, you can look us up on Facebook. Um, we also have a YouTube channel, which nobody listens to, but it's there. So any questions or comments, you can go to the podcast page, and there's a button where you can email me directly. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.